humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are you on this Saturday? Uh, that happens to be Pride Weekend in the Twin Cities. And um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, this is a very special edition of Ellie 2.0 Radio. It is a Pride and Puppy edition. Because if you are looking at me on Facebook Live right now, you are, you are looking at me looking at something off to the side, which happens to be my golden retriever, my English cream golden retriever puppy named Jack. And you just heard me snap for him because he's trying to chew on the carpeting here in the studio, which... Uh, I, trust me, it's not high-end uh, carpeting, but nonetheless, we don't need to add to his um, nutritional supplement with rayon. I'm here. I'm thrilled. I'm a little nervous because I had this big dream of bringing my pup uh, to this show and being able to like, you know, hey, we'll bond around the radio and all of that stuff. But, you know, it's all a challenge. We have Jack actually barricaded in a part of the studio. Otherwise, he would be chomping on every wire in here. Needless to say, I did not plan very well. But I'll be talking about Jack uh, later on. As I said, I'm diverting from my usual format about talking about idealists and idealism. We're going to talk about something related to the LGBTQ community because it is Pride Weekend in the Twin Cities. The first Pride Weekend since June of 2019. <laughs> How that seems so long ago, right? Jeez, that seems like a decade ago. Yes, so Pride Weekend at Loring Park and the Walker Sculpture Garden. So it just seems right to be talking about something related to the LGBTQ community. And the big interview will be an encore of one of my favorite interviews. It's an interview of a woman and a friend uh, and a community leader named Vanessa Tennyson, an out and proud transgender woman and an idealist. Um, and that interview first aired in September of 2018. So you will enjoy hearing from Vanessa again. And again, you, 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 you're hearing my voice fluctuate because I am trying to turn and watch a puppy burrow out of the enclosure that my producer Brett and I have created for Jack, the very smart golden retriever. Okay. Um, and so, in addition to it being Pride, I'm going to talk, it's a special puppy edition, uh, because Jack did come home from Des Moines last week, and I'm going to report on how it's going. <laughs> so, But let's get started. I want to begin with the topic of conversion therapy, and something that Minnesota Governor Tim Walls did on Thursday. For those unfamiliar with the topic, conversion therapy is a brand, a broad phrase that encompasses the idea that it's entirely possible to change a person's sexual or gender identity. Those who engage in the practice of conversion therapy, can be, they can be therapists, they can be religious leaders like ministers or priests, they can be counselors, and sometimes uh, they're people who run camps or programs aimed at thought behavior modification to curb or erase thoughts about um, same-sex attractions or gender identity that doesn't align with one's gender-based birth identity. Um, Michelle Bachman, I'm sure a name familiar to many listeners here on this station. Um, her husband um, ran, and as far as I know, continues to run conversion therapy um, programs. Uh, so 
Um, and, and you may have seen the 2018 movie Boy Erased, starring Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman, which vividly, and I mean vividly, covered the topic of conversion therapy. Underlying the idea about conversion therapy is that somebody can simply choose. And I have highlighted and <laughs> quoted that word here in my show notes. Somebody can simply choose not to have a same-sex attraction or a transgender gender identity. The, quote, therapy techniques can include shaming, deprivations of various kinds, guilting, and religi religious proselytizing. It can be greatly abusive and can result in lifelong trauma. In fact, a 2020 study found that LGBTQ youth who undergo conversion therapy are nearly two and a half times more likely to attempt suicide than LGBTQ youth who didn't undergo that horrible attempt at conversion. The conversion, the conversion therapy has been condemned by every major mental health medical organ, major mental health and medical organization, including the American American Psychiatric and Psychological Associations and the American Medical Association. And so this brings us to Thursday's executive order signed by Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, which directs HMOs health maintenance organizations and health insurers licensed in Minnesota to attest that they don't cover conversion therapy through their policies. So in other words, they need to come forward and say, no, we don't provide coverage for conversion therapy in any form. The order also prevents the state's Medicaid program, MinCare, from paying for conversion therapy. What the order does not do is totally ban conversion therapy in Minnesota. That would take an actual law, which would mean that the Minnesota legislature would have to pass a law, which the legislature has refused to do twice. For those who are not in Minnesota and hearing this podcast, the reason that conversion therapy has not been banned by the state legislature is that while the state house in Minnesota is controlled by the Democrats, the Senate has a very slim Republican majority. Um, as reported in the Minneapolis Star Tribune in a story dated July 15th, Minnesota State Senator Scott Dibble commented on Governor Walls' order, saying, quote, Conversion therapy is widely discredited and causes harm to those who are subjected to it. It is abhorrent. It has no place whatsoever in Minnesota. This executive order will accomplish much in putting a stop to it here. However, Executive orders are, by their nature, temporary, unquote. And that is literally true. It is just an executive order. And as we know, if uh, Governor Walls um, is voted out of office, the next governor, um, I'm assuming if, they were, if it was a Republican, could easily, you just heard me snap my fingers, um, rescind that order. Um, <clears throat> However, even though the state, Minnesota, has not banned conversion therapy, a number of cities and locales have done it through um, ordinances. So Minneapolis, St. Paul, Rochester, uh, all of them, Winona, even Winona on the river, a smaller town, have banned um, conversion therapy. So um, that's a wonderful thing. Um, and, also, uh, and also, I should note that 20 states, so... 20 states have had their legislatures that have gone forward and banned conversion therapy. As also reported in the, uh, the Star Tribune story, the Minnesota Family Council 
here in Minnesota, a very conservative, conservative religious advocacy organization called Governor Walz's executive order an example of, quote, executive overreach that will infringe on the freedom of young Minnesotans, unquote. I, I've got to tell you, rarely, if ever, is conversion therapy the idea of young humans. It is usually the idea of adults who are attempting to control young humans. Um, and underlying all of this, and let's just make sure we um, deal with it, is the idea of this being a choice. Um, whether whomever you're attracted to sexually or whatever your gender identity is, that's the thing inside your bra- brain that tells you literally what identity, what gender your brain believes that you are. Underlying same-sex attraction and transgender identity is the idea that it's all just a choice. You don't have to be that way. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to um, act that way. It's just a choice. And if we can just, you know, get the right kind of therapy for you, you'll see the light. The reality is that many people who go through conversion therapy and then proclaim that they're no longer gay or lesbian or no longer, you know, have a transgender identity, the reality is that many of those people later recant and later say, no, it didn't work, it wasn't right, it, and it doesn't because this stuff is not a choice. And I'm here to report that personally because I will tell you, my listeners, many of you know my story Let me just repeat. I didn't transition genders until I was 52 years old. For 40 years, I fought myself over who I, you know, who I truly was. And I, you know, I grew up as a boy and then as a man. And I fell in love with this woman in high school who turned out to be my soulmate. And I've got to tell you, I did everything in the world. Therapy, you know, um... Um, buying toys, placating, overworking. I did everything possible to choose to stay a man. But I couldn't because that's not who I am. I'm really a woman. And so it's not a choice. I'm here to report that. Oh, by the way, go buy my book, Getting to Well and Available on Amazon, Kindle, or Nook. (laughs) I just had to throw that in. Um, Because if you read the book, you hopefully will come away with the idea that Ellie Krug tried everything to stay a man. It's not a choice. So there you go. Um, So the next time somebody talks about, well, if they could just get the right therapy, maybe they wouldn't be gay anymore. Just understand that that is is not right. Okay? All right. Um, We're now going to go to my encore interview of Vanessa Tennyson from September of 2018. You will love that. Vanessa is very inspiring. And we come back on the other side. Remember, it's a pride and puppy um, show. We're going to come back on the other side. We're going to do the puppy part. Thanks. We 
are back on LE 2.0 Radio. The big interview today is with um, Vanessa Tennyson, who I, uh, listeners, you need to know, Vanessa is actually a dear friend of mine. But uh, the uh, 311, 411 on Vanessa is that she is a former executive with a major um, HVAC company here in the Twin Cities. That's correct. Now, re- now um, not moved retired. Down. Moved on. Moved on from there. And so, Vanessa, welcome to LE 2.0. We'd love to have you here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. And, you know, and... Um, I'm having you here because, well, first of all, you're my friend, but more importantly, <laughs> because, uh, you know, you believe in philanthropy. I do. And, I mean, you're on a much smaller scale. I don't want to insult you. I'm not quite that, Bill Gates, no. That, much smaller scale, but um, you're, you believe in that. And then, in addition to that, you and I have in common that we're both transgender women. That's correct. And um, and I wanted to have you on the show to talk about about your philanthropy, but also about how transitioning genders may have helped shape your world, as your perspective, and what you're doing right now in terms of trying to make the world a better place. Great. So let's just get a little bit uh, about you. You are, how old can I get an idea? 60, just turned. <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> Welcome you. to the club. And... Um, and uh, but for a very long time worked with uh, Michaud Cooley, right? Correct. Um, as the was it the chief operating officer? I was. All right, and and then uh, recently left. I did. And since you've left, you've done some very amazing things. Oh, um, thank you. You've uh, first of all, uh, most recently, what you've done is you've uh, you've funded an endowed scholarship for the Carlson School at the University of Minnesota. And I want to come back to that, but that's okay. one of the things. But then you've become a volunteer for Outfront Minnesota, which is an LGBTQ advocacy organization. Yes. But in that capacity, you're far more than a volunteer because you've also become somebody who is um, a telephonic telephonic counselor. I mean, you are a crisis counselor, and I you know, I know this because I know you. You are getting phone calls at three o'clock in the morning from people who are in great distress. That's have, true. This is not the normal thing that people do when they go on and move. So, Vanessa, tell us a little bit about, first, about the scholarship, if you would. A good friend of mine named Chris Marys, uh, one of the heads of philanthropy at Carlson, uh, he actually called me out of the blue, a uh, friend of ours. We both went to school at the University of Minnesota, and a mutual friend of ours had run into him, and, and uh, he asked about me. He said, you know, how's Joe? And he said, oh, you didn't hear her, you know. She uh, is now Vanessa, and he was, you know, taken aback and thrilled, and we had breakfast and kind of reconnected, and he talked about, you know, what he's doing at the university and what was I doing and where are our futures going, and I said, you know, one of the things that I would like to do on an endowment, and I was, at the time I was talking about life insurance as a legacy endowment, um, was get a scholarship for people in not business ethics, but ethical behavior as a human being. And unfortunately, they didn't have anything like that. Um, and so about 18 months went by, Chris contacted me again and said, how would you consider a current contribution live scholarship? And I said, well, let's talk about it. I said, it has to involve diversity. It has to involve diversity of every kind, including LGBTQ. Um, and I said, obviously, that's important to me. 
but diversity as a whole is important as an issue all over, and Carlson School is, is no different than many other institutes of higher education in that they just don't have that diverse a population. They probably don't have that diverse a faculty either, would be my guess. That's probably true. Uh, but they are on, on the leading edge of making change, and I was impressed with that. Good. Uh, I now sit on their alumni board, uh, and their whole focus is diversity, is getting back in touch with people and then connecting outward uh, to allow undergraduates and recent graduates and even recent uh, parents, if you will, kids who have legacies that may be coming to the Carlson School, uh, to impact them in a manner that allows an expansion of the expectations of business leaders going forward. Okay. Well, that, I mean, those are really great goals. Um, a lot of people adhere to those goals, but they don't fund a scholarship. So <laughs> thank you for doing that. And You're when welcome. will the scholarship kick in and how many students will it serve? Uh, it will start in the fall of 2019. So uh, I should add, we're calling these folks Tennyson Scholars. Is that we correct? Are. That, we are. That is just very cool. Thank you. Um, the way a scholarship works is the University of Minnesota Foundation actually runs the scholarship. You sign up for uh, a number of parameters that you want, and then they do their best, quote-unquote, to fulfill those parameters as it goes forward. Um, it must include diversity, preferences given to LGBTQ, um, and so if, if those things run out, they can either choose to hold the scholarship or give it out to other uh, students of need. Uh, it starts 2019-2020 school year. It can be a, a full tuition scholarship for one student. Uh, it's obviously need and academic-based, so they may have three or four students that uh, don't have a full academic need, and they split the scholarship up. So it's really up to the foundation to decide how and when to use the money the best way. Well, thank you for doing that. You're Congratulations. welcome. It's my pleasure. So, Vanessa, um, we're going to have a break in a minute, but what I wanted to at least get started is Why? Why, you know, I have known you now for several years. You have one of the biggest hearts I've ever <laughs> seen in a human. You really do. You're and, very kind. You know, what, what got you, I mean, and, and intertwined with this is being transgender. Because yeah. you and I both know that when you grow up according to your birth gender, you know, both uh, identified as male when we were born and all of that stuff. And then we realize something is up with, with us as it relates to gender. You, like me, tried to stay, you know, conforming to society and to male. And once we realized we could no longer do that, once the lid was off, um, both of us, I think it's, I don't want to speak for you, but both of us pivoted in a major way That's about, about the world trying to be better, yeah. making the world better. Why do you think that happened? I've got, you've got about uh, 50 seconds to tell me that. <laughs> we'll come back to it after the break. Okay. Um... Well, like you said, you know, when you live your life one way uh, and you feel odd, you feel something's wrong or whatever, you're, you're, you're trying to distract yourself for the longest time. Um, and then when you discover what it is and how it can be corrected, um, there's kind of this metamorphosis. There's, there's a butterfly that opens its wings, as mm -hmm. it were, and, and actually um, becomes something else. Um, it's a derivative of the person that was in the body and is now expanding into a different version of that same person uh, because your, spec your, per your perspective changes. Uh, my parents hammered in the golden rule, that, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. And, 
you know, so I lived my life with a philosophy of helping other people first and myself second or, you know, in, in that manner. And so when I decided to leave Mashad Cooley and move on, that just ended up expanding itself into a whole different humanity realm. Well, that's good. Wonderful. That's a great place for us to jump off when we come back from our break. Listeners, you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, um, speaking with my friend and a philanthropist, uh, Vanessa Tennyson. When we come back from our break, we'll continue our discussion with Vanessa. And uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be back in a second. We are back on Ellie 2.0 Radio. I've been speaking with Vanessa Tennyson, um, another transgender woman like me. There you go. You're getting, you're getting a two for today. We're coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but we've been uh, talking uh, a little bit about her philanthropy, um, which um, in part, I think, uh, triggered by the ability to finally live authentically as who you are. And before we took our break, you were talking about growing up in a household where your parents stressed the golden rule. Mm-hmm. and um, But there are a lot of households where that is stressed. And it does not necessarily make um, for somebody who decides to pivot in such a big way. And you did. I mean, you have pivoted from a very prominent, uh, well-paying um, corporate position. That's true. Now to a volunteer um for LGBTQ causes and um, and 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 somebody who is being um, awoken at three in the morning when people are calling, <laughs> who are people who are calling you who have nowhere close to the amount of privilege that you had. That's very very true. And continue to have, but you yet have put yourself out there. To, to listen to them. And will you talk to us a little bit about that? Why, how do you go from very a powerful COO of a company of several hundred people um, to talking to somebody in great crisis who happens to be gay or lesbian or transgender at three in the morning? Catholic guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, but. You know, um, I don't, I don't have a solid answer to that other than that um, from an early age, I just grew up wanting to be nice to people. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it was anything in particular that was purposeful. It was just, you know, I would see something, I would want to fix it. I want to help it. And I was very fortunate in my career. I had a lot of doors open that I fortunately walked through and didn't get slammed in my face. Right. Um, I worked very, very hard, as you did. Um, you know, being labeled a workaholic, um, I never viewed as a negative. <laughs> <laughs> well, workaholic just means I work a lot more hours. It doesn't mean I skip my family. Um, and so I had the opportunity to do quite a few different things in my career. Um, when I left, uh, I thought, you know, I'd, I've been really, really fortunate and it is incumbent upon me, not just as a transgender person, but as a human, to uh, bring forward things that I have the opportunity to do so with. I, I have the money. Um, so when you have the money, spend it. 
and spend it in the appropriate and right places and places that make you feel good and that actually helps other people because honestly you can't take it with you and I know that's a you know old cliche but the reality is you don't want to take it with you you want to leave a legacy you want other people to have the opportunity to expand upon what you started and you know being a transgender woman was never anything I planned about you know, it just happened. And, Amen. <laughs> and, you know, people are constantly, oh, you're so courageous and you're brave. And I'm like, you know, I, I know you see it that way, but it's just not true. I'm just being who I'm supposed to be. And Finally, though. Yeah. Finally. And, and you know, the, the courage happens a long, long time ago when you're trying to maintain a semblance of what is considered a normal life. That takes courage. Uh, coming out and, and actually being a woman and, and finally feeling settled uh, and purposeful, that's, that's the easy part. Well, you know, I use the phrase idealist. I call myself a practical idealist. Mm-hmm. I, and I've always viewed myself as an idealist. I mean, my idealism goes back to Robert F. Kennedy and Dr. King, and the listeners have heard that ad nauseum. Um, but... Um, I could never allow that to show um, when I was presenting as a man because I was working so hard to try and stay male. Mm -hmm. And I was also, that was just too deep to allow the world to see inside me. Certainly. Because there's a lot of vulnerability about being an idealist. It is. There's a lot of, uh, you call yourself a a servant leader. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I'll have you explain that in a second. But there's a lot of vulnerability when we allow ourselves to show up and say that we're going to try and do good in the world. Right. Because the vulnerability is is that people will try and kick us back. That's true. Or that we'll be thought of as hopeless dreamers. Yeah. And I've had that thrown at me before. And, um, but you know what? This is who I am. I mean, that's why we have this radio show. That's why I bring people like you on. Because, and you to be congratulated on that. Uh, well, thank you. You are. Um, but, but, but... I also believe that if we don't talk about idealism, if we don't talk about the good work that we are doing, not on a braggadocious basis, but simply on a basis of storytelling, that we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. This is how we learn to do things. This is how we find that things are acceptable for us or that are expected of us. So tell me, what, what is a servant leader that you uh, describe? Servant, servant leader. Um, actually, the phrase has been around for, I think, since the 1950s, since someone coined the term. But a servant leader is uh, a person who puts everyone else's needs ahead of their own and leads those people into a place of unity, if you will, um, everyone getting better, uh, puts the needs of the other person before their own needs. So in... As in, as in three o'clock in the morning right. phone calls. Well, don't laugh about it. I think that that's pretty significant. In a, in a business context, that would be profits aren't the first thing. The people's success is the first thing. People being happy, people being motivated, people being appreciated, uh, feeling that they're valued. The, the profits will just follow that. Um, but if you get stuck saying, I'm the boss, you know, you, you, you take the risk that you're wrong and you're not open to hearing how you are wrong and how others may be right. As a servant leader, you never run into that problem because you're constantly um, working on feedback. You're constantly asking others what they would think, what they would do, how they would react. Um, and it's, it's not only more fulfilling, it's much more human. 
it allows people the respect that for most of their lives, for a lot of the population, they just never get. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, growing up. When I came out, um, I had two very uh, different visceral reactions. My uh, asthma doctor, um, when I came out to him, he said, well, that doesn't surprise me. And I said, really, why is that? He said, because you would always compliment me on my glasses. And he said, I've never had a guy do that. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you go. Another perspective that I hadn't even thought of. And I was a, uh, a, a self-acknowledged clothes horse. I liked to dress well. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, I had uh, a person I worked with say, I, I, I don't get this. You were the man's man. You had the car, the clothes, the house, the family. And I said, well, I guess it was a good facade, wasn't it? I said, I was just being who I had to be uh, in order to, to be okay with myself. And But when we do that, we tap down so many things yep. that, that allow us to really show up authentically and it's allow us, true. I mean, you know, um, and what, when I transitioned, I, you know, I essentially said no more civil trial lawyer because that was a very time intensive, very emotion intensive, and I was beating people up. I mean, I was a pretty good trial lawyer. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing that anymore because that's not who I am. Who I am is this kind and gentle human mm -hmm. who wants to make the world a better place mm -hmm. and who wants to say, come on, everyone, you can do this too. It yeah. is within you. Yeah. You know, and I do believe, I mean, one of the things I train on is that I do believe that all humans, 99% of us have empathetic hearts. Absolutely I mean, one, agree. 1% social, total sociopath, but the other 90, 99% of us have these empathetic hearts, but most of us are scared to death to exercise those hearts because we're afraid of what we're going to get involved in, or we don't know how to get involved, or, oh my God, it's going to cost me money or time or all kinds of, all kinds of heartache. But you know what? When you give people a pathway on how to exercise their hearts, they show up. They it's show true. up in droves. It's they absolutely really true. And you know, your book quantifies very well the struggles you had uh, as oh, an aggressive, uh, uh, forceful male attorney. Uh, and I know that that transition was not easy for you, and it inspired me. Um, it 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 allowed me to take from what you gave and expand it into my own world. And that's, that's pretty much, you know, inspiration comes from, you know, admiration. And when you, you know, for you as Bobby Kennedy, mm -hmm. um, when, when you admire someone, what they stand for, who they are, whatever it is, um, you naturally inspi get inspired to do better things yourself. Um, it's just a natural human instinct. Um, and I agree with you that 99% of the people out there have the capacity but don't have the knowledge or courage. And it does take courage. It, it does for our empathetic hearts to show up very often. So, um, Vanessa, before we leave, now you've gone out, you're doing this volunteer work, you're, you know, you're paving your way, you're, but you've also formed a company. Do you want to talk a little bit about your company? Certainly. Um, it's Operations uh, Expertise and Management, and um, the tagline is Capitalize Your Humanity. So it's, you know, if you want to go see my website, it's CapitalizeYourHumanity.com. And really what it is is a management consulting firm um, wherein I would be hired to come in and help people understand servant leadership and help them get out of their own way, let the people that work for them do their jobs and do them very well because that's what they're hired to do. Get out of their way. They can do their job really well, but 
you're, you're keeping them from doing that. So trust that the people that you hired are doing their job well. Let them do it. Let them grow in their world, which in turn will grow your world, which in turn will make the world a better place. Okay, so you're in the name of your company again? Operations, Management, and Expertise. Okay, and the website one more time? CapitalizeYourHumanity.com. Okay, well, that's great. Well, um, you know, I guess uh, last remarks... Um, Vanessa, it is a um, it is a journey. Yes, right? it is. It's not a destination. No. Um, and uh, I'm in awe of you, and I want you to know that because you do not need to be taking phone calls at three in the morning. I, even Ellie Krug, I don't do that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I will take them up till ten o'clock at night. But then after, <laughs> I mean, there are some people have a license to call me at any time. But you don't need to do that. And, and I just want to tell you how much I um, admire you. You're very kind. For doing that. And um, I don't know, what closing thoughts? Do you have anything else you'd like to say? If you have it and somebody else needs it, then you should give it to them. <laughs> how incredibly beautiful. Thank you. Well, um, we've been talking with Vanessa Tennyson um, about her Wonderful scholarship, the Tennyson Scholars at the Carlson School at the University of Minnesota, which will begin in 2019 to 2020. That's correct. And her company? Operations, Expertise, and Management. Okay. And how she's going out into the world. Um, again, a transgender woman just like me showing up and doing the work. Absolutely true. Not on a soapbox. Nope. Just who we are. Just live every day. Here we are doing yeah. our doing our stuff. Do the best we can. And Vanessa, I've just loved having you on the show. Please very con kind. continue to do what you're doing. Thank and you. you know I'm here for you, however I can help you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. All right. Everyone, um, you've been, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. People love my newsletter. When we come back, I will do my last segment. She will always carry on. Something is lost, something is found. They will keep on speaking her name. Something's changed. And we're back, Ellie 2.0 Radio. We're back. I hope you enjoyed that encore interview of Vanessa Tennyson, who is remains a dear friend of mine and who is doing so many things behind the scenes that no one knows about to help humans. <laughs> I adore her. I do. All right. Um, we've got the pet, you know, pride and puppy. Uh, we've got the puppy segment coming, but I just before I do that, I, I want to bounce back to an idealist. Let's at least get something in about idealism, other idealism here, Ellie. Uh, several months ago, I did, I, I highlighted attorney Ben Crump, the attorney who represents a lot of, of victims of police misconduct, police brutality, police horrors um, who represented, you know, the, the family of George Floyd, very familiar name here in, in the Twin Cities. Attorney Ben Crump, I highlighted him as an idealist, quite a story, and, and uh, go through the, you know, the, the inventory to go find uh, when I uh, highlighted him. But I wanted to bring him back up because this week, um, he and Al Sharpton announced that together they were taking up the cause not of a black 
a a young man killed by police, but of a white man, of 17-year-old Hunter Britton, B-R-I-T-T-A-N, who was shot by a police officer on an Arkansas roadway. Um, And Hunter Britton was unarmed, um, and he was attempting to comply with the police uh, command to stop his vehicle, but his vehicle was rolling, so he got out of the car. He, the, the, the parking brake didn't work on the car, and he was trying to put something under the tire, and the police officer shot him. Ben Crump has taken on that case, and you may wonder why. It's a white kid, a 17-year-old white kid. Why? Because Ben Crump and Al Sharpton, very smart people, because they want to highlight that this thing about police being out of control. By the way, I like police officers. I respect the profession, but we have some police officers that should not be police officers. He wants to highlight that it affects white people as well as black people. So stay tuned about that. That's, the, that's taking on the cause of 17-year-old Hunter Britton. And in fact, uh, Al Sharpton was asked to speak at the funeral for Hunter Britton. Al Sharpton said it's the first time in 30 years he had been asked to speak at the funeral of a young white person. Okay, puppy control. And uh, my producer, Brett, does not know that, but in a second, um, after I do this, I'm going to have to veer away from the microphone. I'm going to pick up the pup because for those who are on Facebook Live, Brett, I'm sure they want to see this puppy, okay? So just, just be aware that's coming up, okay? But I have this pup. His name is Jack. Um, He is a um, golden retriever, but he is English cream, which means he is like white as a snowball. And you'll see that in a second, Facebook Live people. Um, I picked him up from the breeder uh, who was, let me just tell you, a wonderful breeder in uh, Ankeny, Iowa, just north of Des Moines. I picked him up on Saturday. And um, he whined, he cried a little bit in the car, and I had the, the back seat of the SUV down and so, and I have a, a canvas um, crate with a zipper front and I, you know, he, he whined and cried as we were driving up I-35, but I put my arm back behind me as we drove. So it wasn't very comfortable for me. And Jack fell asleep on my arm and he slept on my arm for a hundred miles. That's where we began to bond. He has upended my life. I am a person of, of habit, a person of routines, okay? There's nothing, you know, in, habitual or routine about having a puppy. Um, but notwithstanding all of that, okay, notwithstanding the challenges that we have around housebreaking, you know, getting him housebroken and around biting, uh, he loves to nip. And I am looking right now at five puncture wounds on my hand and arm, <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Notwithstanding all of that, this animal has given me intense joy. I have not laughed so much in the last several days. I mean, it's just, just what, you know puppies, okay? And of course, he's the most adorable puppy in the world. He's also my end of life companion. And so today, you know, as I'm trying to corral him and, and, you know, after we, he, I, you know, we, I'm not sleeping that well, although we're starting to sleep a little bit better, but we do, we do love and time after I take him out initially and feed him. And, and, you know, we've got an hour literally of, of trying me to wear him down again with playing with toys and all that stuff. But he, he, he just sat still on my lap for like 10 minutes and just sat there 
and let me pet him and stroke his wonderful, wonderful soft coat. And, and there was just this great sense of joy that overcame me. Now, I also have to tell you, I have guilt over what I have spent on him. It has not been cheap to get a puppy, okay, because there's the cost associated with just paying the breeder, and then what I have spent to puppy-proof my house, to get some gating up, to create an ex- exercise pen downstairs, all that, you know, vet, vet stuff. And I feel guilt about that. Um, I mean, I do give to causes, I do pro bono work, all of that stuff, but... There's a part of me that's like, you know, Ellie, you could have really made a difference in a human's life with what you have paid for this pup. And I don't know how I'm going to reconcile that, frankly. I don't. Um, So stay tuned about that. Having him, though, has also changed my perspective on single parenting. Um, You know, not that parenting a child is the same at all about parenting a puppy, but it has reminded me of the commitment that one has to make to something that is innocent and unable to fend for itself, whether it's human or animal. And I just, it, it, I have newfound respect for single parents. I do. And we, you know, and we don't make it easy. I've got resources, okay? A lot of single parents don't have resources. And we don't make it easy, although uh, the the Biden uh, tax uh, credit for parents has gone into effect. Hooray. We'll see what that does. Okay, but that's not, you know, a whole lot in the end. We do not make it easy for single parents. So, okay, producer Brett, uh, I'm going to step away. So just a second. I got to grab the pup. I'll be right back. Okay. Right, so as we speak, Ellie is getting Jack on her lap. Got to wake him up from his uh, nap, though, as he has been behaving himself during the show. Uh, there he is. And there is Jack. Thank you, produce, producer Brett. So for those of you who are on Facebook Live, okay, right now you're looking at <laughs> what was a sleepy Jack. <laughs> And you're looking at my best friend forever, life and companion. Don't worry, I'm not dying or anything like that, but he will be the last dog and last pet I have. Okay, that's our show. Brett, you've been a great producer. You've like gone above and beyond today, helping me create a little bit of a corral for Jack. Listeners, um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Um, email me at lejkrug at gmail. Follow me on Twitter at elliekrug. I love hearing from you. And uh, take a good last look at him on Facebook Live. In the meantime, I'll be back next week, hopefully with a guest. But go out, do something, make the world better. Until then, be well. Bye.